Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the July 16, 2023 session, focusing on Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. Birth wrongs. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Bert Montgomery. And I'm David Adams. Birth wrongs. That's a really good title. I have to give credit to that one to David Adams. And you'll see how it matters in a little bit. But before we jump in, it is the three guys again this week, David Adams, Bert Montgomery, and myself. We again are without supervision, and anything can and will happen. But we do miss Nikki and hope she feels better. And also, Daniel, we hope things are going well at youth camp. As a lead-in question today, I'd like to ask... If there's ever been a time that you felt passed over for something that you thought you had earned. Oh, wow. (laughs) These are not memories I'm proud of. My, My senior year in high school, I had become in band, marching band. I was somewhat of a, one of the key leaders work your way or by age, as well as activity into being like one of the key leaders by your senior year. And a part, a friend of mine who was in the low brass section with me, he and I both were sent to drum major camp for the summer. And it was going to be between me and him for drum major. And I was convinced that it was mine. A, I felt more liked by everybody. And B, I just felt it was mine. And uh, excuse me. Anyway, so we got back and the band director chose the other guy. And I was really hurt and to some degree upset and mad and resentful. And he said, look, I went to the band director and he said, look, I need you on the trombone section. You're the number, you're the first seat trombone. And I just need you to be that. And I was band president. And it turned out to be perfect because I got a big trombone solo on the field and all that stuff. And he did a great job as a drum major. But yeah, I was really ticked off about it for a while. I think there's something about this question that is universal to the human experience. I think we all have times we're going to say that. And I'm curious that when groups are talking about this in their class, they're listening to this, how many of them are going to have trouble sharing their story? Because it's something that's so personal and so shaping to us sometimes. And if you work someplace, you had a job somewhere, you may feel that. It's almost inevitable. Probably happens in dating relationships quite often. I can think of lots of academic things that I could bring up too. For me personally, though, I'm going to say that many of us, because I'm cheating here, but many of us get the feeling this when it comes to the sports teams we follow. We go all season. I have to admit, I'm a big fan of the University of Kentucky where basketball is. And every (laughs) season, if we don't win, it's not because we didn't deserve to. It's because somebody else was given something that belonged to us. And so we have a lot of people who are allegedly fans roaming our state, feeling bitter about having been passed over for something they thought was their birthright or their heritage that they didn't get because there's somebody, some evil referee or somebody out there who made sure they were passed over and they didn't get what they deserved. I imagine there are probably some Alabama football fans feel the same way sometimes. (laughs) It's out there. I think this is one of those places where life has lived large for a lot of us is through the things that we follow as hobbies or our special interests. 
sometimes we just don't feel we get what we deserve out of that. As a follower of the Arkansas Razorbacks, I have every understanding of what you're describing, except for us. Usually it's we're robbed in every game. There's some yeah. penalty or play that that gets us. I, Especially when playing Kentucky in basketball and Alabama in football. <laughs> no, that's, yes. that's just the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> that's justice taking place there. On oh, I can't believe you told a band story, Bert, because that's what I'm going to do. All right. So in high school, I too played the trombone. And it was a constant battle. Me and the guy, there were several of us played trombone, but two of us battled it out for first and second chair constantly. And it just was a matter of which week it was as to which one of us was first chair. So I felt not bad. I'm not terrible at this. And, and so when I went to college, I got a band scholarship and I got went there and started attending rehearsals and played the trombone. But by I never felt really welcome there. So in, in band in high school, I was the drum major my senior year. And so band was just a huge part of my life. And I thought it would be the same in college. But when I got there, it was like a click. There was this group that was, and they were just really tight. And they weren't really interested in this freshman coming and being part of what they were doing. And and the band director was clearly caught up in it too. By year two, I didn't even get offered the scholarship again. That ended my band career. Wow. But yeah, no, that was just so weird. Because I had such an expectation that was going to be a big part of my college experience, and then it wasn't. But yeah, what do you do? We are still in Genesis, and we have a familiar passage today. David, would you help get us started with this? Sure. We are in Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34, which is one of those weird parts in Genesis. Anyhow, over the past few years, I've been discovering that when you preach fairly often, you tend to develop a few catchphrases. There's probably not a pastor out there who doesn't frequently say something that has their audience inwardly rolling their eyes as they hear it for the umpteenth time. For instance, I find myself reminding my congregation that I used to sing in a lot of choirs and have a good grasp on classical gospel music. In fact, I've been asked many times to sing on a hill far away. But seriously, One of the most used phrases, for me anyway, is that the Bible is a different book. Because while you might read a book, it's a book that reads you. The point is that while you're reading history, poetry, prophecy, literature, or other things in scriptures, the scriptures have things in them that connect to your personal narrative and speak to your soul. It's the preacher's job to help you see where that happens. Of course, if you assume that this is true, as I do, you might assume that there are going to be places where you do not connect, or where the connection you make is likely not a good one for some reason. That's okay, too. We're all different, after all, and we have a faith that's strongly shaped by our identity and our ongoing commitment to others. We're not always supposed to hear the same things. The differences between the things we hear makes faith that much richer and more meaningful. I thought I should remind you of this, because when I read the story of Esau's and Jacob's birth, I feel that it could put people at a crossroads. 
The academic community cannot shake the knowledge that this story was likely told and collected into the scriptures at a time when the Israelites were completing their conquest of Palestine. It serves to answer questions like, why is God okay with us conquering and possessing the land where other people live? Using a narrative that just about anyone can relate to, sibling rivalry, it clearly makes the point that the religious leaders of the day felt that they deserved to be able to do this since the people living there were somehow unworthy. More to the point, it explained why there was such a strong rivalry between the Israelites, who styled themselves as Jacob's descendants, and the Edomites, who would have been the descendants of Esau. There is still hope of reconciliation there, and no little indication that Israel is complicit in the ongoing conflict, even though God told them to do this. But at the end of the story, Israel will be the victors. This story can be difficult for us in that, for some, it perpetuates a harmful way of thinking, that some people deserve to take from others. And as an excuse, those other people weren't handling things correctly in the first place. You don't have to go very far to hear the old stories about how Native peoples have been forced off their lands because they weren't using them properly, about how darker-skinned people needed to be enslaved because they could not otherwise manage themselves properly about how certain groups shouldn't have rights or be accepted because they can't be responsible citizens or make good choices. How is that any different from saying that an entire tribe deserves to lose what they have because an ancestor got really hungry and made a poor choice? I'm sitting out on a slippery slope when I talk about this passage of Scripture. It can take you to a lot of bad places. At the same time, there are a couple of better places where you can go to. Who hasn't dealt with the rivalry of some sort over the years? When you think back on your rivalries, you should be able to relate to this story and the longer narrative that comes after. And sometimes it helps to look at the root of those rivalries and ask, who did what to whom? If you are to have any chance of transcending them. While nobody knows why Yankees fans are such terrible people, we all know that Duke is a terrible school because they tolerate goons like Christian Leitner. That's just science. Once you understand such things, it's easier to put rivalries in perspective. You likely have conflicts of your own that could benefit from a bit of dispassionate analysis, and sometimes stories like this can help you get there. Perhaps the larger thing you might want to take away from this passage is that sometimes people give up precious things in favor of what they want at a given moment, as Esau did. Verse 34 of the passage states that Esau despised his birthright. And it makes me wonder about the contemporary people who despise theirs. Since I preach a lot, I often talk about sin. For the record, I'm against it. But the more I talk about it, the more I see how much of what is wrong in the world seems to be caused by people who want things right now to address the desires they have right now, with nary a thought toward what will happen in the future. If people really thought more about the health of God's creation than making a buck or getting more, would we have the problems we do with climate change? If folks weren't trying to satisfy immediate urges, would we have so much addiction, human trafficking, grinding poverty? If people didn't satisfy their immediate urges to be mean or react with harsh words and deeds, would violence and division be such a problem? 
If world leaders thought about the devastation it causes for so many, instead of what they want right now, would we really be so quick to resort to war? All too many of the problems that plague us can be traced to the fact that we despise our birthright as God's children. As we reach for the things we think we need at the moment, we often forget about the hand that has us by the ankle and holds us back. God's gift of grace, loving kindness, unconditional love, and acceptance, and soul are getting cast off in favor of the soundbite, the snappy internet comeback, the corner office, the extra money, and the other things that come with not cherishing our birthright. We make a lot of jokes about the people who are willing to do ill-advised things in order to feel that they are owning the libs. But we are right there with them. I don't believe that anyone has the right to take things from other people under the pretext that we somehow deserve them more and could handle them better. But I grieve for the things that we hold too cheaply. Our birthright is not to be despised. If you could hear this passage saying that, Perhaps the Bible is reading you well after all. That's some thoughts about this passage. Thank you for that, David. I haven't paid attention to this text in a long time, other than in my role as a freshman level, introductory level religion professor. And I just approached the historical lineage and the fact when we're talking about Father Abraham had many sons, and Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. And I trace Judaism and Christianity and Islam, and we talk about Abraham and Isaac, and then from Isaac comes Esau and Jacob, and Esau is the firstborn, and Jacob's the one who steals everything. Not unlike Isaac is the secondborn son of Abraham, not the firstborn son of Abraham. And yet we trace two major religions, trace ourselves through the secondborn son of Abraham. And so there's that theme there. That's where I've been stuck with this passage in my mind for many years and haven't really revisited it. I love how you've reclaimed it and put it into a context of birthright and being passed over and the conflict and the bitterness and the family infighting and how we still do that, that, hey, this is rightfully mine and your people don't deserve it anyway. So thank you for that. And how often that we do that in our own lives as well. We feel passed over, we feel taken advantage of, or we know that we deserve something that other people have rightfully shown they can't take care of things, and so we could just take it. It's a powerful way to look at this text for us today. So thank you. And I'm also taken by your second-born observation, because I've been noticing this as over the weeks before now when we've been talking about these passages and if we read carefully going back a few weeks they're talking even to the binding of isaac they're talking about him being the only son that abraham has no he wasn't ishmael was there before he was but suddenly he's out of the picture and now we're talking about esau and he's going to be out of the picture later on we're going to hear god referred to as the god of abraham isaac and jacob with the other kids left out of the picture. This sense of being special, of, of deserving something, being able to just shove people aside to fit a narrative, it can be troubling. I'm grateful to have I'm grateful to have made several friends who are rabbis. 
and who have helped open my eyes to the complexities of these Hebrew texts and who acknowledge that they struggle and they see this as part of their calling to wrestle with God and wrestle with text. Why is Esau? What's the ethical response to this? And why is Ishmael left out of the picture? And how do we, should it, is it right that we simply say, oh, that's just the way it is and that's God's will and let it be done? Or should we wrestle with, what if we were Esau? What if we were Ishmael? What if we were their people? What if we were the Edomites? And so to hear, to hear Jewish folks talk about those kind of questions and admit to the complexity and the troublesome ethics of these kind of texts is helpful to me and hopeful to me to give us as Christians permission to ask those type of very hard questions instead of accepting it blankly as it's just the way God wanted it to be, which always tends to favor us. Yeah. And I wonder where this comes in Christian faith too, because you hear of so many people who struggle with the scriptures because they're saying, look at all the bad things God does and all the horrible things that people did in God's name. And how are we supposed to feel about that? And there are, there's passages in there about killing babies, like the sword and all these kinds of things. And now we have these stories that are, for lack of a better word, origin stories or racial origin stories, trying to explain their place in the atmosphere and the culture of that day and age. And they're trying to justify why they're doing the things they do by telling those stories in a certain way, to slant it in a certain way. Oh, okay, it makes sense. You should do those things because God wants you to have this, that, or the other thing. It's like a justification being in there for the hard things. Seeing that, I kind of wonder, for those of us who are Christians and more focused on the New Testament, are there places where we do that? You know, where our narrative has that in it? We allow those things to happen because, oh, yes, we're in the middle of doing something bad and we know it. So we've got to go find a justification for having done that bad thing. And I think we sometimes see this played out in the way churches and denominations do their business. I also appreciated, Dave, how you reminded us of our tendency to trade that which is less valuable for that which is more valuable or vice versa. In this instance, Esau was hungry <laughs> and gave up something of far more value than just a meal. And it did, at least according to what we see in the text, pretty quickly and easily. And we may look at that and go, oh, yeah, wow, he was impulsive. That was a stupid decision. But I think we're so incredibly capable of doing the same thing and do, right? Where we take something that is not very valuable and trade it away, trade away that which is valuable. And I guess what I'm thinking is this raises for us the question of how we consider our choices, how we consider what is valuable and what is not, and that our culture for sure is focused on short-term gratification. It, it tells us, it shows us, it, it tempts us. <laughs> with all sorts of wonderful things that we can have right now, if we just will. And we are usually trading something for those, whether that is outlined well or not. We almost always are. And there's an ethical consideration in that, especially for our culture that, that you're making me wonder about too. At this point in the story, you don't see 
Jacob saying, you made a mistake. Let me give you a do-over. I'm sorry I did this to you. Let's just fix this and try to be better next time. Life teaches us some harsh lessons, and we're not quick to say, oh, okay, this was not, you didn't make a good choice here for whatever reason. That was dumb. Let's learn from that and move on. It's hard for us to say that and embrace that particular ethic and how we deal with people sometimes. Based on what y'all have both just said, it made me think of the the Bible verse, and I'm not looking it up, so I can't remember exactly the text, the scripture text, but it's, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And I'm thinking where we are right now in our country, where the ultimate goal is to gain everything, to have control, to deny, it's my right if I can gather up enough resources and everybody else who can't, that's just their fault. They're lazy. They're not as resourceful. They're not as smart. They're not as crafty. They're not as organized. They don't want it as much as I want it. And then if I've got billions of dollars and everybody else is beginning to have less and less, then I have every right in the world I want to build a spaceship and watch things blow up in space. Despite the responsibility toward others, it's their own fault. They were lazy. And we worship that. Now, even in the church, we'll talk about We'll use that verse. What does it profit a man if he loses his soul? But at the same time, we want and celebrate the individual superman. And let's face it, let's keep it masculine for right now, because the role is it's mostly men, although there are a few exceptions. It's the superman, the overcomer, and they that we aspire to be like them. So we're not going to be jealous of them. God has blessed them. And it's their decision if they're going to use their blessings to bless others, and they don't have to. So how even in our church language and our Christian use of politics to justify the pursuit of gaining our world and losing our soul, selling our birthright for that momentary meal. And and then the back end of that is where do we come off deeming people as somehow being unworthy Mm -hmm. if we're people who are supposed to be celebrating grace? You get the idea that if— this were Jesus were telling this in this parable that Esau would be the person at the 11th hour who still gets paid the same, right? Yeah, yeah. And the rest yeah. of us, everybody else is Jacob saying, wait, whoa, you know, <laughs> that idiot. Let me tell you what that idiot did. And we've been out here, look at us. Wow. Yeah, Jacob definitely takes advantage of a moment of weakness to make things better for himself. And it, it is a bit predatory. <laughs> Yeah, it's part that. it's part of our economic culture that we celebrate even in our churches. Yeah. Yeah. Because some, the nice thing to have done would have been to say, I see you're hungry. Come in and sit down. I've made something. You can have some. Yeah. But what are you going to give me for it? What can I get from you? <laughs> are you willing to give me your birthright? That's just good. That's just good business, right? It's just good. That's, and where have some of the biggest scandals of economic, what's the word I'm looking for, swindling taken place in companies associated with Christian denominations, Enron, WorldCom? Oh, my gosh. We often say that these more familiar passages could be some of the hardest ones to to focus on because we've heard them so often and we have a sense of where they go and what they are calling us to discuss and to consider. I do think it's been nice in this conversation today that we've looked at this in the context of some of the larger movements. We've been in Genesis for several weeks now, 
if we see in these stories real people dealing with real issues, facing life just like we do, dealing with family, dealing with needs, dealing with greed, dealing with issues of power, it's all there. And it is a wonderful opportunity for us to both look in the mirror to see where are we like Jacob, for example, and eager to take advantage of the needs and weakness of others to better ourselves and to further our gains. And where are we like Esau, where we allow our impulsiveness and our addiction to having everything right now to allow us to trade away things that are valuable. It is an interesting text that has much to lead us to discuss, and I hope your groups will do that as you look at this text today and allow it to take you places that perhaps you've not gone with this text before, because that is part of the nature of Scripture, that it does, as David said, read us more than we read it, if we allow it to. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.